All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, very glad you could join us. Uh, I'm very thankful, as always, to be able to worship with you and to share God's word. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Sam. And if you're new or visiting, we especially want to welcome you to our church. I'm part of pastoral staff here. Uh, thank you so much, Jen. Super, super encouraged. Uh, this is one of those days for me. That last song we sang is one of my favorite praise songs. I feel like this testimony for Jen, it's so encouraging and challenging. So it might be one of those days <laughs> for me. If you guys know me, uh, I'm not a feeler, but when I feel like God is moving, like I, I might go a little bit uh, crazy. So uh, I'm feeling it a little bit today. So, but that being said, a couple things. Um, all church fellowship, uh, it might not be a big deal. It is not a big deal to many of you, but to me it is. We secured the biggest shelter at the park. Praise the Lord. Uh, the past three ones, somebody always gets it. Uh, but this time we got it way ahead of time. It is the largest shelter. So I don't know if that changes anything, but please come. <laughs> we definitely planned ahead. And just know we try to do that at least quarterly because I'm sure, especially if you're new, a normal Sunday is hard. And if I can kind of normalize the experience, it's hard for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're new or you've been here 10 years. Just after Sunday at a church our size and this location, it's not the easiest to feel connected. So it's just one more step more intentional to go to a park uh, for the purpose of connecting and fellowshipping. So we do encourage you, uh, please do come out. Obviously, food will be provided. And another thing I want to mention is, uh, for those of you guys who have been coming, particularly for our members, we've been talking about something called formation groups. So we've been going over practices, and one of the things we went over was Bible reading. And hey, how do we tangibly find an arena or a group of brothers or sisters where we can really hold each other accountable and grow, intentionally, spiritually speaking? And so we've been thinking and praying about this a long time. It's something we're going to call formation groups that's going to start in the new year. Uh, more details and information about the signups will be coming out soon, but please keep a lookout for that and know that that's something that is very much on the radar for us, and we're excited to uh, see our church grow together in that way. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we've been going through a series titled Practicing the Way of Jesus, and what we've been doing is we've basically been taking a look uh, at the spiritual rhythms and habits that Jesus himself practiced, right? He practiced what he preached in his own life while he was here on earth. And so far, uh, we've touched on the practices of silence and solitude, Bible reading and prayer. There's eight total we're going to go over, and today we are on number four. And I think the first three are somewhat familiar, uh, especially Bible reading and prayer, but even silence and solitude, you probably grew up knowing that, hey, quiet time or QTs, that's something you should do. But today's practice, uh, I'm confident we're not that familiar with, uh, both in knowledge and in practice, and it is the practice of fasting, as you should see right there. So if you have your Bibles, or more specifically your programs, we're going to look at two texts that revolve around the idea of fasting. I'm going to, they're both coming from Matthew. First is from Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll skip and read from Matthew chapter 9. And so as you open your Bibles, grab your programs, uh, here at our church, every time we open God's Word, we believe that God is present, that He is moving and speaking through His Word. And so if we can all rise together uh, for the Scripture reading as we hear from the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, starting from verse 1, this is the reading of God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, him being Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will 
fast. It's reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would move and work and would really uh, allow the words to take root in our hearts, that you would speak in a powerful, needed, relevant way to increase our hunger and desire for you, God. And so uh, once you speak to your church at this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. So my uh, son Ezra, I have two sons. Uh, the first son Ezra is about to turn two soon. And if you, don't, if you haven't heard, that's a, that's a thing for parents. It is a scary transition because of something dubbed the terrible twos. Uh, it is a stage, uh, sounds like Jen and Richard are out of it now, right? They're more in like calculus parenting. We're still in addition subtraction parenting. And terrible twos, basically, if you don't know what it is, it is a phase marked by tantrums, defiance, lots of frustration. Uh, I, I'm convinced that rage is not developed until your child turns two and that you realize how angry you can actually get. And the reason actually is a positive thing is because they're starting to develop rapidly and they're having all these new desires within themselves, but they don't necessarily have the self-control or the patience to, to process and to communicate these desires, hence tantrums, right? They have all these things they want and they can't really get it or they don't know how to wait for it. And so all they can do is to see and feel what is in front of them and the only path to satisfaction is that thing. Now, Ezra obviously isn't necessarily being evil, at least not all the time, right? He's simply being a toddler, and he's actually following what psychologists call the pleasure principle. And the pleasure principle basically means that the ultimate driving force for you and your decisions and your worldview is to, like it sounds like, seek and obtain immediate pleasure. For example, the other day, uh, we wanted to reward Ezra after a long week of daycare, uh, and he was sick and he was getting better, so we bought him like these little ice cream bars that we wanted to give him. And uh, you know, the key is you can't let toddlers see something, because once they see it, it's game over. So we tried to sneakily put it into the freezer to give it to him later. He saw it, and then boom, tantrum time, like, I want it now, give it to me now. No amount of reasoning, no amount of idea that, hey, if you eat it now, you're going to get cavities, you have to wait because dessert's better for after dinner, because he's what? He's living out the pleasure principle. That's what's going to bring me joy, and I need it now. So what differentiates Ezra, a toddler, from a mature adult? Uh, Sigmund Freud, allow me to get a little nerdy here, very well-known neurologist, he argues that the natural tendency of the human mind actually is to lean towards the pleasure principle. So we all kind of are born into the world with this mentality. And maturity, or becoming a mature adult, he says, is actually learning to endure the pain of what he calls deferred gratification. So as opposed to the pleasure principle, maturity means you now adopt a reality principle, which he says is basically in this mindset, you kind of teach yourself and learn how to forego immediate pleasure because now you have a more sober sense of reality. You understand things more reality, right? Now, it used to be that pleasure principle, it applied mainly to children and adolescents, understandably. But it's not hard to argue that today, the pleasure principle is the widespread norm for all of society. It doesn't matter what age you are. Isn't that right? Now, even though as adults, we generally know that, hey, immediately pleasurable things can often be harmful in the long run, and sometimes things that aren't necessarily enjoyable right now have reward and payoff down the line, uh, society shows that people aren't really believing in this or they're not living it out. How do we know this? Uh, one of the worst problems in society right now is debt. What is debt? You do not know that you can't spend money you don't have. And individually, communally, corporately, society, debt is skyrocketing right now because people can't self-control. Another one is divorce. You should understand, hey, 
being covenanted and being committed, that is the long way to fruition in a relationship, but people want what's right in front of them. And so you see cheating, adultery, and you see uh, divorces happening. And not only that, uh, not only those two things, you also see addiction, right? The definition of addiction is you cannot help but control and want what's in front of you. And so you are just living in indulgence and sensuality because you can't say no to what feels good in the moment. Now, why does this matter? John Mark Comer, who I really was inspired a lot by, here's what he says. It matters in light of this series because, quote, as long as we run on the pleasure principle, we will never mature into the man or woman that has the capacity to enjoy life as God intended. In reality, we are not running our lives at all. We are being run by what the New Testament calls the flesh. And we're going to break that down a little bit later. But I share this as a little bit of a longer intro to provide a nice framework, I think, To make sense of the practices of Jesus. Because please, please catch this. One thing the Bible makes clear is that Jesus was the only human who ever walked this earth that actually lived in light of true and ultimate reality. He's the only one that could actually boast that he lived by the reality principle. Because of who he was by nature. And as we hopefully have been seeing through this series, the ultimate reality for Jesus in these practices was not just to check off a religious duty list or to do some religious thing or just to make a show, but it was to legitimately live out the fullness of what it means to be human and in relationship with God. So that's a nice framework for someone that's more religious by nature like myself and maybe some of you to understand, oh, that's what these practices are. And one of those things that he considered vital was fasting. Now, I'm not sure what your experience and understanding of fasting is. Maybe you never heard of it. Maybe you did it once in the church when you were in a youth group and you didn't know why you're doing it. Or you went on a missions uh, trip and then your missions team fasted for some reason and you weren't sure. But just know, as someone who's been a Christian for a very long time and who is a pastor, uh, I was kind of rebuked because I realized how little I know about fasting. And I'm going to presume by extension, many of you probably don't know much either then, Right. And so that being said, today I hope to kind of hopefully correct either a misunderstanding or an absolute ignorance about what fasting is and show us that it might be something that we might consider as Christians and followers of Christ. So to do that, we're going to look at four things. First, Jesus' practice and view of fasting, and then break it down quite simply, what is fasting, why should we fast, and lastly, when should we fast? So first, Jesus' practice and view. So even though Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years, I mentioned that last week, same age as me. Every time I think about that, I think I've done nothing with my life, right? Jesus' public ministry actually didn't begin until he was 30 years old, right? Might be a reminder or might be your first time hearing that. So ages 0 to 30, Jesus lived a very normal life. But at age 30, a very significant moment happens that ushers in Jesus' public ministry for three years. Anybody know what it is? Rhetorical question, don't answer. It is when he gets baptized, So in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized, the heavens open up, the heavenly father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, and that is immediately prior to what we read, which is the first thing Jesus does after this significant moment of his life of beginning his public ministry, is he goes into the wilderness and spends 40 days fasting. That's what it says in verse 1 to 2, right? Now there's a couple of things to note here about it. Number one, there's no indication that Jesus was fasting to follow a commandment or that God somehow told him to fast. So it's reasonable to conclude Jesus chose to fast. Okay, this is not being enforced upon him. He chose to fast. Number two, there's no indication that Jesus is viewing fasting as a means to an end. I don't know about you. My experience with fasting often is, hey, if you really want something, or if you want God to know that you're serious about something, you got to get, you got to fast. So that it's like supercharging your prayers to God. Jesus seems to be fasting for the sake of fasting. 
that it, in itself, it is the end. There is no ultimate purpose or there's no ulterior motive that he's doing it for. And lastly, the wilderness in the scripture is not always just a random place. It always represents a place of testing. So in the Old Testament, when Israel was in the wilderness, that's where God was testing them, and they failed miserably. And so Jesus is here in the wilderness to be tested and tempted. And so if you put it all together, it seems Jesus is fasting in order to strengthen his spiritual resolve and connection with God in order to overcome the temptations he will face. That's kind of a distilled version of what's going on here. And after 40 days of fasting, the text tells us Satan comes to tempt Jesus, and here's his first temptation. Look at, look at your text, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, this is a, a very reasonable temptation, okay? Jesus has not eaten as a normal human for 40 days and 40 nights, and he has the capacity to turn this stone into 85-degree bread in, the, in a second, right? So Satan is saying, Jesus, do that. You're hungry, aren't you? But in verse 4, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what is Satan trying to tempt Jesus with here? Isn't it the pleasure principle? Right? He's saying, you're starving. Make yourself some food. Satisfy your fleshly craving. But what Jesus shows here, both in his practice of fasting and in his response to this pleasure principle temptation, is this. As humans, we are created to be fulfilled and sustained by more than just our carnal fleshly desires. This is an absolutely fundamental, profound truth we have to understand. His response to, aren't you hungry, is not that I'm not hungry, but there's more to satisfy my hunger than just physical bread. Now, this is very important is to have a, a working theology of how we are created as humans. So please bear with me because I think it is absolutely crucial. Genesis tells us when God creates man, humans from the dust of the earth, he does it in a physical sense, right? Literally, humans are created from the dust. So like the plants, the animals, the birds of the air, and humans all in one sense are physical beings. I think that's very understandable, not hard to get. But Genesis also tells us that God does something to humans that he only does to humans, which is what? He breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of just humans, not into animals. And the word there for breath can also be translated as spirit. Only humans were created both in physical but also spiritual dimensions, which means animals have bodies but no spirit. Angels are spirit but not embodied. Humans are both in our very created design. And this is so important to understand if something like fasting will ever make sense to you beyond just a religious duty you're supposed to do because it is only with this understanding that you can make sense of what Jesus is saying that even though physically he is depleted and hungry, spiritually he is full and fulfilled and able to resist temptation. You see what's going on there. In fact, this paradigm helps make sense of some of the crazy stuff that Jesus says, like man shall not live by bread alone. Makes sense. Or in John 4, Jesus doesn't eat while doing ministry, and his disciples say, teacher, why don't you eat? And here's what he says. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father. Oh, it's starting to make sense in that paradigm. Or in John 6, Jesus says, my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So there's a lot more going on than just our carnal physical appetites here. So in light of this, though more can be said, at the very least, Jesus practiced fasting as a necessary spiritual rhythm. Now, was it just something that he needed to do? Absolutely not. 
right? In Matthew 9, the text we read earlier, Jesus is approached, and I'm going to explain a little bit later, but essentially he says, while I'm here on this earth, my disciples don't need to fast because I'm here with them. It's a time of celebration. But when I leave and when I am gone, he says, they will fast. Not they might or they can choose to. It says they will. When I'm gone, they're going to fast. In Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast, and he gives a prescription of how to approach it. In other words, when you do it, not if you do it, should you choose to do it. In other words, Jesus viewed fasting as a normal practice for his followers. And basically, kind of, he essentially expected and anticipated that the followers of Jesus would practice fasting. Now, you might be thinking, that's crazy. I don't fast. I don't know many people that fast, and I agree with you. Uh, it's crazy to me as well. But it was very sobering to hear that in the, in the broader context of biblical and historic uh, Christian practice, we're actually the odd ones out. <laughs> we are the weird ones. Um, biblically speaking, fasting happens all the time. Major characters fast, like Elijah, like Moses. The church fasts in the book of Acts in the early church. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel corporately fasts all the time. Not, not only in scripture, but most of Christianity throughout the world and history viewed fasting as this important practice that they did. In Jesus' time, Christians would fast two times a week. And relatively recently, in about the 1700s, that's when Christians kind of stopped practicing fasting as a core spiritual discipline in following Jesus. Now, I share this not to say what's wrong with us or to call us out or to make us guilty. If anything, again, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I don't fast regularly. It was new to me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know many Christians that fast or even talk about it. But here's where I want to um, really challenge us to consider that this practice in particular may be God's unique gift and call to our generation in our specific culture moment. Here's what I mean. And again, I like how Pastor John Mark Homer explains it. I'm going to paraphrase him, and the text is up there. He basically says, very few followers of Jesus fast. Yet this is potentially one of the most important practices of our time. The Spirit of God is always zigging where culture is zagging. The Spirit always moves in the opposite direction of the gods of our age. And as the movement is towards sensuality and indulgence of the body, the Spirit may be calling us to greater and deeper surrender. And I think this is so true. Like I mentioned to start this message, there is no greater God and paradigm that pervasive throughout our culture than the pleasure principle. I do what I want, when I want, give me what I want, I'm going to feed myself, I'm going to indulge myself. And how true is it that as Romans tells us, the distinctly Christian things to do is to go the other way, to swim upstream from culture, to deny the very natural craving that the whole culture seems to have given into. And I cannot help but wonder if the Spirit of God is starved and quenched within our hearts because we do very little to intentionally combat the desires of our flesh, to make room for the power and the activity of the Spirit in our lives. So Jesus clearly fasted, and though it's not easy, right, he was hungry, he understands it's hard to do, Jesus expected his disciples to fast as well because it seems like he knows that there's a power that comes that can only be unlocked through something like fasting. So if that's the case, what is fasting? Very, very simple definition. Point number two, what is it? The most basic definition of fasting is you don't eat food. Sometimes that includes not eating water, but generally speaking, it is not eating food. Now, uh, if you grew up in a Christian context, uh, I know some churches take that and they try to expand it and say, hey, you could choose to fast food or you could fast other stuff. You could fast your Instagram, you could fast uh, social media, you could fast your, your video games or your relationships, whatever. Now, 
that's a similar principle, but I want to assert that that's not fasting. That's just abstaining. That's abstaining from doing these things or abstaining from partaking in this. But fasting by definition and biblically speaking is you don't eat food. Now, that's not to say that abstaining from certain distractions for the sake of your devotion to God is not helpful. I think that's a very good practice, but that's not fasting. Now, it's also helpful to clarify that fasting is not distinctly Christian, right? Uh, Almost every major religion in the world practices fasts in some form, right? Not only that, uh, one of the more popular non-religious fasts that a lot of people, I think even in our church, tried something called intermittent fasting, has nothing to do with God, has everything to do with your image. And talk about pleasure principle personified, right? Intermittent fasting, by definition, is I want to eat what I want, but I also want to look hot. That's literally what intermittent fasting is. So I'm going to indulge myself, and then I'm going to starve so that I can get what I want and look how I want, but I can eat whatever I want to. Like, talk about, like, the opposite of what Christianity is, but so many people got into intermittent fasting. Now, if you did that, I'm not judging you. It's okay. But that being said, intermittent fasting is not religious at all, but it is still a fast in a sense. And so that being said, obviously what I mean by fasting has God woven into its practice and purpose. Uh, Here's two definitions that I found helpful. John Piper says, whole body hungering for God is one way to think about fasting, where you're not just saying I love God and I hunger for him by words and in your mind, but your whole body is kind of representing that. Dallas Willard said fasting is the idea of feasting, not on food, but on our Lord and on doing his will. Now, a couple of clarifying things that might be helpful. Um, Other than that, there really are not too much more constraints as to what constitutes fast. It can be any length. It could be 24 hours. It could be one meal. It could be a few days, a week, 40 days. You can do it individually, and you see that in Scripture. You could do it uh, communally. We see that in Scripture. So what a fast is is pretty straightforward, and there's not too much red tape as to what it is. But what is never the issue, right? It's why. Why would I deprive myself of food? Which obviously needs a little more explanation. So why fast? Um, I don't know if you ever had those moments where you see or hear something hundreds of times, you feel like you know it inside out, and then somebody points something out, and you're just like, I never saw that. I never knew that. And I had that experience while preparing this message, and I'm still digesting it, but I just wanted to share it with you briefly. Um, we're all familiar with the story in Genesis 3, original sin, right? Satan, the serpent, comes in, and he basically tempts Eve, and he says, hey, did God really say don't eat of the fruit of the tree? Uh, you know, God's not really thinking about your best interest. Eve believes that lie, and that she ends up taking. And Now, obviously, we might be familiar with that. Uh, the, the aspect of original sin that I found very intriguing that was pointed out that I never really heard in the sermon is that it is rarely, if ever, highlighted that original sin had to do with food and the inability to say no to eating something right in front of you. And the first temptation of Jesus has to do with food. Turn these stones into loaves of bread. Like it's literally the pleasure principle at work. Do you give in and trust what's in front of you and your appetite and your craving? Or do you trust in God as a source of your security and fulfillment? Now, I find that fascinating. Now, there must be something to that that I'm still digesting. The fact that both the original sin and Jesus' first temptation had to do with food. But obviously, we know what Eve decided to do, right? Because now, we are all plagued and affected by what the Bible describes as the internal warfare between Flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. The internal tension is pictured throughout the New Testament, right? 
But the clearest passage is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 17 and verse 24. I'm going to read it briefly and then I'm going to kind of build off of this text. It says, uh, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he's basically saying within a, a, a human and a Christian, there is the flesh, which is not just your body, but it, uh, it describes it as your kind of fallen desires and unhealthy cravings. And then there's the spirit that kind of beckons you towards God and holiness. And these two are at war. They are literally polar opposites. But verse 24 tells us, but those who belong to Christ... Don't just let that stay there, but they have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. So the picture, again, that's being described is there is this flesh living within you, the sinful carnal side as a result of the fall, and the spirit who lives in you to call you to repentance of sin, to call you to live in holiness. And the idea Paul is giving is simple. We need to focus on gratifying or feeding one over the other if we're to walk in the way of Jesus. Makes sense. So to literally use Paul's words, Christians, if you're calling yourself a Christian today, we are called to crucify and put to death fleshly passions and desires. So let's go back to the question, why fast? Why deprive our physical body of food? And in case you're mistaken, uh, food is it's good. It's God's creation. There's nothing bad about food. We're not ascetic. We're not saying, you know, this is something evil per se. But why in moments and seasons do we deprive ourselves of food? Now, there are nuanced ways to answer that question. But for the purpose of this message, the, the definition I like uh, that I thought was helpful is we fast to starve the flesh and to feed the spirit. Very simple imagery tied to the text we just read. When we fast... We are tangibly practicing the reality that in Christ, we are no longer mastered by our bodies or our fleshly desires. When we fast, we are embodying the spiritual reality that greater than our immediate desire for food is our deeper desire for Christ and to be in fellowship with him. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds so anti-gospel, Pastor Sam. Why do I need to manifest or, or prove my love for Jesus. I know I love Jesus. Isn't it enough for me to say that I love him? Well, yes and no. I've shared this before. The most terrifying question I ever was asked was from my lovely wife, Angela. First time I said to her, I love you, she said, how do you know? And I, I normally sweat, but I sweat a lot that day. And it's actually a fair question because the point is not that you don't love Jesus the point is, how do you really know you love Jesus? It's a reasonable question. Augustine, he shares this quote. It might seem a little heady, but it really gets to the point of this. He says, quote, For the most part, the human mind cannot attain to self-knowledge otherwise than by making trial of its powers through temptation by some kind of experimental and not merely verbal self-interrogation. How do you know a married couple loves each other? Day one of marriage. I love you. Now, they're not being ingenuine, but how do you really know? Versus a married couple that has celebrated their 40 years together going through the, the trenches of life, up and down, sickness, trial, turmoil, strife, and going through that, and they say now, I love you? That's what Augustine is saying. It has been put to the test. It's not just words. 
I have seen Christian after Christian after Christian say, I love Jesus. Maybe it's some of you here today. It is so easy to deceive ourselves that we love God unless we put that love to the test. Not just with words, but with a cost and sacrifice. And sometimes that test is externally brought upon us. But other times it is internally brought upon by ourselves for the sake of legitimizing our love to Christ. In other words, the regular practice of preferring fellowship with God above food, it creates a practice of communion and intimacy that legitimizes the word we proclaim about our love for God. Now here's the paradox that I think is very important to wrap our head around. You would think if fasting by definition means to feast on God, the equation must be the more you fast, the less hungry you will be, right? Because that's how the physical body works. The more you eat, the less hungry you are, right? If I stuff myself with Korean barbecue, I'm not going to be hungry. But if I haven't eaten anything, I should be more hungry. Well, I found this quote very helpful and challenging at the same time. John Piper says, One might think that those who feast most often on communion with God are least hungry, but paradoxically, it's not so that they are the least hungry saints. The opposite is the case. The strongest, most mature Christians I've ever met are the hungriest for God. It might seem that those who eat most would be least hungry, but that's not the way it works with an inexhaustible fountain and an infinite feast and a glorious God. In other words, the equation is... Those who fill themselves with the things of this world lack an appetite and hunger for God. But those who hunger for God grow even hungrier for God, for the glories and the fullness of being in relationship with him. And this is an indictment on us. I never felt like the Holy Spirit shine a light so hard because then the question is, how is your hunger for God these days? Are you hungry for God? So a baseline explanation of why we fast is to starve our flesh and feed the spirit. Or put another way, combat an earthly appetite for a heavenly one. Now obviously up to this point, we're talking about fasting more as a general rhythm and practice, which is important. But there also is throughout scripture specific situations and types and seasons of fast that uniquely call for fasting. And I do want to highlight them because I think for some of you, you might fall under one of these categories, and I would particularly encourage you to consider fasting in light of the season of life you might be in, which leads to the point, when should we fast? Now, I want to give credit here. Uh, Pastor Tim Mackey, he's just really good with providing categories, and he provided basically, he took all the examples of fasting in Scripture, and he gave three general types and categories that basically sum up all the kinds of fasts. And so he's the categories he gives, and they're general situations that I think are very appropriate for us today. And what I would say is consider, do you fall under one of these right now? The first type of fast he says that you see in scripture is what is called the crossroads moment fast. Or in other words, it's a defining moment fast, right? Jesus's fasting would fall under this. He had a significant crossroads defining moment where he was baptized. He now began his public ministry. So in light of that, and in response to that, what did he do? He fasts. Another time is in Acts chapter 13, in the early church of Antioch. It says they were worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. This is basically the beginning of the missionary movement. And in light of this important, significant moment in church history, they choose to fast and pray. Now, how does this apply today? For some of you guys, you either are in, or you may feel like you are in a crossroads moment in life. Maybe it's a big decision looming ahead of you. Maybe it's a career transition, relationship breakup, 
Or maybe an unexpected circumstance has entered your life. And that happens all the time, doesn't it? And you're not sure what to make of it. Plans fall through. Things happen that you didn't think would happen. What the Bible says is, do what you need to do. But amongst that, maybe you should consider fasting to accompany your processing and praying about what is God doing in my life right now? That's the first type. The second type of fast, which is by far the most common, is what Mackie calls the turning from sinful choices fast. This is by far the most common one. It basically refers to situations where the people of God are convicted of their sin, and in response to that, they fast in repentance. One example is from 1 Samuel chapter 7. I won't go into too much detail, but basically it talks about how there was a period in Israel's history where they were in sin, and it wasn't just a week or so. It was many, many years. And then Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Put away the foreign gods, put them away, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And in response to this conviction of sin in verse 6, it says, say, they gathered, they drew water, poured it out, and they fasted on that day. In my experience of church, as much as we do our weekly confession of sin, that's usually not how repentance plays out in most Christians I know. Ideally, it would be, right, that you have this regular confession that, man, the the sins I committed this past week, God, I give them up to you, and we're kind of cleaning house regularly. But the, the besetting sins, the ones that take root, the ones that, as Israel went 20 years without recognizing its sinfulness, those are the ones that every now and then God, by his grace, through the preaching of his word, through the fellowship of the saints, through your own humbling and coming before him, the spirit will tell you that thing that you've normalized in your life, it's not okay. It is grieving to the spirit. It is sinful before the Lord. And when he shines the light on that, the temptation is to either self-pity and wallow and say, I'm such a terrible person, which is not gospel at all, Or, I found this to be the case, to move on too quickly. And what I think the Bible says is, if there is a sin that you have been walking in that is not pleasing to the Lord, and at this moment, some of you guys may very well have those things if you would just take the time to slow down. God says, if you really want to genuinely grieve over this sin and repent of it and turn away, maybe you need to fast. That's number two. The third is what he calls the tragic calamity fast. Second Samuel chapter 1, after the death of Saul, it says that David and his men go into time of mourning. In verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with them, and they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted. Um, life is tough, right? A lot of times fasting is associated with mourning. Um, it's not uncommon that if you go to a funeral or a death of a loved one, that last thing you want to do is eat, right? It's almost like your body is hardwired to understand that tragedy and calamity brings about this sense of all appetite and sense of wanting to eat is gone. And life is tough. Uh, With time, we will face horrible and tragic situations. I'm sure some of you have already. Um, Some of you guys might have seen this story. I'm going to keep it generic, but there was a sister in Christ who went overseas some of, uh, one of our members uh, knows her. She went to serve overseas. She's early 20s. Uh, it's mind-blowing to me that that's 10 years younger than me now, right? That's crazy to me. Um, but baby, basically, long story short, uh, she got sick out of nowhere. And so many of us were praying for her. Many of us were 
kind of following her story because, you know, early 20s, so much of life ahead of you. And I actually heard a little bit more of the details today. I, I didn't know, but she was engaged. Um, and so she just went to serve the Lord. Uh, and then I actually found out earlier this morning that she passed away from this unexplained freak sickness. So I heard that, and um, apparently uh, her fiancé uh, shared with people that, you know, because obviously they're checking in with him. And apparently he shared, he shared with people that, like, oh, ever since she was a little girl, she always longed to be with the Lord. Like, death never faced her. Death didn't scare her. So that's me, like, you know, this is me, like, my favorite praise song, <laughs> beautiful testimony. I'm messed up by this. And I was just, I was thinking, even as we were singing the song, first I was thinking, it makes me want to fast and be sick to the stomach that something this tragic can happen, right? Like, there are far worse situations that people get into, far more sinful things, and they get to live a full life, and you have this early 20s girl who's engaged, wants to serve the Lord, and she gets taken away by this freak sickness. But another thing that I realized is, like, how pleased God must have been by her. Like how, like since she's a little girl, she like can't wait to be with God, you know? And so like how happy God must have been to be like, like welcome home, good job. Like I, I couldn't leave you on earth any longer because your desire was so strong, your hunger was so strong. So how pleased it must have been. And the, you know, the lyrics we sing, like faith to sight, like for her to know that, um, living by this reality of Christ and putting my faith in him rather than just temporary. I mean, by, no one who goes overseas can live by the pleasure principle, right? So for her to do that, and, and when faith turns to sight and she sees heaven and she sees her heavenly father, to know that it was all worth it, um, in one sense it makes me sick to the stomach about this tragedy, but in another sense it makes me rejoice and glory in the fact that she is with her heavenly father and she is what the Bible calls, uh, she is at the feast, Feasting in the presence of God. And isn't that one reason we all naturally fast? If we know there is a great feast awaiting us, don't you naturally want to fast, right? Like you want to not fill your stomach with junk. If you know you have a big meal awaiting you at night, Korean barbecue, steak, whatever it might be, nobody has to tell you, hey, save some of your stomach. Don't eat hot Cheetos and junk all day. Save your stomach for the true feast. We all do that. And in Matthew 9, if you didn't catch it, that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, my disciples and followers are going to fast because when I go away, there will be a longing and homesickness and groaning for my return. And one of the ways he describes his return is there's going to be a heavenly feast. So when we fast, we remind ourselves and we embody our belief that it's not about just earthly things or carnal desires, but the glory and the feast that awaits us. That's the third reason in response to tragedy, to us personally, to others, loved ones, the world at large. And so I would ask if there is a tragedy that is either at play or in play or it's going to come into your life, one way is to fast and to sit in the grief and to sit there with God who wants to provide comfort. So again, fasting could be a general practice, but there are also unique fasts as we see in Scripture. Now to close, how do we practice this, actually? 
How is this not just a nice sermon, but how do we practice this? Um, before anything, let me make it clear, though. Fasting is not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Prayer is, right? So as a pastor, I have every right to command you according to Scripture. Hey, you need to be praying, right? Pray without ceasing. Pray for the church. But fasting is not. And so if you leave this sermon and say, like, hey, fasting's not for me, all good. You're not any less godly. In fact, some of you guys, maybe fasting is too associated with, like, being a religious, legalistic person. So I would say, if anything, don't do it then. It doesn't make you holier. It doesn't make God more pleased with you. But as we've seen, Scripture does seem to point to the fact that you should consider it. There are legitimate spiritual benefits to it, and everyone is in unique context with their walk. Uh, Some of you guys, maybe you legitimately can't fast for health reasons, and all that is to say, generally speaking, for those who want to consider it, not the nuances, a couple practical applications as we close. Number one, I would say, is to start small. The first fast I was ever introduced was a 40-day fast. That did not do well for my pragmatism. (laughs) I'm like, I will never, ever do this again, right? The strength, I hope, if you didn't catch this yet, the strength of these practices are in their consistency as a rhythm and habit rather than in their intensity. In fact, relationally, not to say this is necessarily the case, but to give you an analogy, it's almost offensive when someone never talks to you, but one day out of the year, they're like, let's get deep. Let's like connect right now. Does that work in any relationship or in marriage? It's almost offensive to think, so you're telling me that 364 days out of the year, you don't even acknowledge my existence, but suddenly, because you feel like it, you want to get all close and chummy? I'm not saying God feels that way, but I would feel that way. And so the strength of these practices is being very realistic to make it a rhythm and a habit. Maybe it's just one meal. Maybe it's just one meal a week, one meal every other week. Whatever it is, starting small is wise. And while I can't point to it in my own life as much as I'd like to, right, I'd love to say, and I've been fasting, I haven't done it at all, so I'm right with you. But my aunt, I went to my aunt's house the other day uh, to help her see Ezra, and then she wasn't eating with me on a Thursday lunch, and I said, why aren't you eating? And she said, oh, I'm fasting today. And you know my, like, limited understanding, oh, what are you fasting for? Is it, like, special occasion? She's like, no, I've been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, there are legitimately people who do this. So I was humbled. This is something that people actually do. Two, probably the most important, plan what you're going to do during the fast because if you don't, you will just think about what you want to eat. That's my experience at least. Again, refraining from eating is not what is spiritually beneficial. It's how are you going to replace that time oftentimes. And a lot of times it's tied to prayer, fasting and prayer. They're like a one-two punch. That's not to say you can't pray without fasting or you can't fast without praying. But when you combine them, something amazing happens. So whatever the case is, have a plan for it. I think it's a great time and opportunity to practice some of these things. And then lastly, consider fasting with community. Um, In my experience, any of these practices will fizzle out if I try to do it alone. The most success stories I hear about following Jesus always happens with accountability and community. At least one other person. So I would encourage you, if the spirit is moving, find one other person who feels convicted. I want to try this out. Grab them and try it together. For community groups, I've heard some churches, what they do is they'll, as a community group, say, if we meet Tuesday night, We'll eat Tuesday night, and then from 24 hours until Wednesday night, we're going to fast together. I really like what Jen said, tying it into your normal rhythms so that it's easier to remember. I think that's really, really cool. Or for our church, one thing we started this past year that we hope to do again is the season of Lent, 40 days heading into Easter. We invite the whole church to fast together. And it was actually a very beautiful time. We have this whole email thread where people would fast and they would sign up and they share their experience and their reflection and a prayer. And here's the thing, okay? 
I am confident that nobody left that time, though, radically transformed. That's kind of what I hoped, to be honest. I hope that after this thing, like, Grace Hill is going to explode with the revival of God. People are going to be like, oh, my, I love Jesus more than I ever did before. But some of the most honest reflections were I fasted, and it was okay. It was just okay. Yeah, I thought about, like, what I want to eat. I read the Bible a little. I realized, like, oh, hunger doesn't really bother me that much, right? And it's just very real human experience. And that's totally good and encouraging because... Fasting along with every other practice is not a magic bullet to change your life. We wish it was. I asked married couples, how do you connect? They said, do something like a date night. I did a date night. Nothing happened. You know why? Because one date night is not going to transform your relationship. It's not the point of date night. It's the point of are you creating space and avenues and practices and rhythms and habits for God to move and shape and form you into his image and form you into the image of Christ. And so, therefore, relational intimacy takes practice, intentionality, and rhythms. But the Bible says there's no relationship more worthy and worth it. 